This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Descent Magazine. Descent's fall issue, Out Now, features a special section on the promises and limitations of socialism today. The issue features many writers you've heard on The Dig, including Sam Adler-Bell, Aziz Rana, Nikhil Paul Singh, Gabriel Wynett, Alyssa Battistoni, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, and more. It's a really great issue, filled with the most pressing questions about where the left goes from here. You do not want to miss it. Visit dissentmagazine.org slash subscribe to get your copy. That's dissentmagazine.org slash subscribe. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. For a long time, Europe seemed like a model of what sort of social democratic society worker power could win. Countries with large socialist and even communist parties, where labor could flex its muscle in the streets in a way hard to imagine in the United States. These were countries, however short of utopia, that boasted, depending on the place, government-run health care, lengthy paid parental leave, social housing, and long leisurely vacations. European social democracy showed that the state could, in fact, make people's lives significantly better, however deeply complicit in colonialism and the post-colonial world system that order might have been. Indeed, as I discussed with Kojo Karam recently, the neoliberal overturning of progressive gains in Europe has its roots in the first world's neocolonial preemption of social democracy, let alone socialism, in the third world. Today, capital reigns unchecked across the globe, pillaging third world and first alike. European politics now evokes a persistently rising anti-migrant far-right, a struggling left, and a decade-plus of severe political and economic crisis, a crisis that has provoked intense criticism from left and right alike of the EU, an elusive and slippery institution that's rather difficult to define. The European Union has without a doubt been a force for neoliberal discipline, but it's also been an alibi for national leaders who had converted to the creed well before Brussels could have made them do so. Today, I'm discussing that crisis and what the European Union has to do with it with two really brilliant guests, Anton Jaeger and Dominic Leuster. This episode is a really expansive historical overview of Europe and the European Union, from the crises of Keynesian social democratic welfare states of the 1970s and 80s, to the Maastricht Treaty of 1992 that created the European Union, through the Eurozone crisis that exploded out of the global financial crisis, on to the present moment amid the war in Ukraine and renewed NATO expansion. Before we get started, please do consider taking a quick moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. We do indeed have advertising, and I'm very thankful to our advertisers because they are for publishers and publications that I myself think are great. But the overwhelming reason we can put this podcast out every week, free to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay, is because those of you who can afford to contribute a few bucks a month do so. A contribution of any amount at all, anything, gets you our wonderful weekly newsletter emailed to you, to your inbox. 
If you haven't checked out that newsletter yet and don't yet know how wonderful it is, you can read them all for free at thedigradio.com. But trust me, you do want us to email it to you. You're just way more likely to read it and thus enjoy it on a regular basis. What's more, contributions of $10 or more a month gets you a book or books in the mail, or a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. Please take a quick moment now and contribute what feels right. I get an email with the name of a contributor every time there's a new contributor, and truly, it warms my heart. I mean, most other emails are stress-inducing. These are, these are nice ones to get. So please take a moment. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Anton Yeager and Dominic Loyster. Anton Yeager is a postdoctoral researcher at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. His history of basic income, Welfare for Markets, will appear in April 2023 at the University of Chicago Press, co-authored with Daniel Zamora. Dominic Loyster is an economist and writer based in London. He's currently the research director at the Global Economic Governance Commission at the London School of Economics and a regular contributor to Jacobin. Anton and Dominic also recently started Eurotrash, a podcast about European and international politics. Their newest episode is just out now, and I've posted a link in the show notes. Anton Yeager and Dominic Loyster, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Let's start with a big definitional overview. What is the EU, this body that contains the European Council, the European Commission, the European Parliament, the European Central Bank, the Eurogroup, the European Court of Justice, the Court of Auditors? I don't even know what that one is. There's also, of course, the Schengen Zone of Free Movement. What are these institutions? What sort of powers do they exercise? And how do they all add up? To something called Europe or the EU? Anton? Yeah, that is indeed a very big definitional question. Um, and as usual, it needs to be historicized insofar as the EU is not a sort of constant body that exists through time. It does change quite heavily. And I think there is a tendency to see a continuous history of European integration from the immediate post-war period, so in the 50s and 60s, and basically teleologically extended into the 80s and 90s and then into the present. Um, Although the European Union we have today and the one we knew in the past does actually differ quite profoundly. So the European Union you just mentioned and the agglomeration or collection of institutions that fall under it is very much a product of the early 90s, so of a treaty called the Treaty of Maastricht, a city in the southern Netherlands. And there are essentially two ways of seeing what it is. Um, There's a tendency both on the left and also on the right to see it as essentially a super state. So this massive governmental machine that hovers above national states and that dominates them and basically exerts power on it. Um, So you could almost see it as the equivalent of the federal government as you have it in the United States. And then you have the European nations that act as American states under it. And then there's another tendency to actually just see it as an emanation or sort of practical arrangement by European nation states as such, which doesn't really stand above them, but is 
just an extension of it. Um, and I think the institutions you mentioned are actually far more hybrid. So they have some what you could call supranational features, like bodies like the ECB or the European Central Bank, the European Commission, also the European Parliament, which do have a relative degree of independence from nation states. But then you also have bodies like the European Council, uh, where you have the gathering of the prime ministers, presidents of respective European countries, uh, that are actually not supranational and maybe, or mainly collection, sorry, of those uh, national states. And it's precisely this hybrid status between a supranational body and an intergovernmental body, which makes it so difficult to define, or I could almost say, create an ontology of what the European Union is. Um, and that also leads to a strategic confusion in how people relate to this body that they don't actually, or they can't like properly define what the European as a governing body really is. Dominic? Yeah, and just to add, um, what you could you could also construe these institutions as the, the culmination of a set of responses to perceived economic and geopolitical pressures in the early phase. Um, so during the fifties and sixties, with the first Treaty of Paris um, and the Treaty of Rome, which established sort of the the the, the front runner organizations of what is now the EMU and the the European Union. So the EMU stands for Economic and Monetary Union. Those uh, early integration periods took place within the context of the Cold War. But more recently, there have been quite other um, economic um, trends uh, in the context of global integration into the global trading and financial system that uh, European states have responded to. And, and that's, that arrangement resulted in the Treaty of Maastricht that, that, that Anton already mentioned. And what is peculiar about this and what makes it even more difficult to understand is that it seems that macroeconomic competencies, so fiscal policy and monetary policy, they are in a way uni unified and, and, and centralized at the uh, um, European levels, so both in, 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 Bru in Brussels at the level of the Commission and the Council and in Frankfurt at the level of the ECB. But uh, politically, these are still independent nation states um, which uh, don't benefit from transfers among each other and which uh, still issue their own debt. And I think um, it's worth recalling uh, what one commentator said about the Master Treaty. It's an economic constitution, but a political treaty. And the implication is that there are binding economic rules, but there isn't really a polity in which um, these rules can be discussed with any level of democratic input. And let me just add that one political scientist used this phrase from Louis Althusser, namely a process without a subject. And I think this is actually an elegant way of capturing the paradox or the bizarre nature of the European Union. So it's not the sort of solid body that sustains itself through time, but as Dominic says, it's mainly the pragmatic collection of a set of responses to different kind of conflicts and challenges. One more general question before we get into the history precisely in terms of the subjects of that non-existent subject, because the popular relationship to the EU seems to alternate between rage and apathy. On the one hand, there are typically very low turnouts for EU elections and little grassroots investment in European-level political formations. But the last three decades have also been punctuated by huge periodic explosions. In 1995, 
major French strikes against pension and welfare cuts that President Jacques Chirac had introduced to comply with EU budgetary requirements. In 2004, widespread opposition to the infamous EU Directive on Services, which would have allowed companies to pay the lower wages of a worker's country of origin instead of the higher wages of the country that that worker was working in. Then in 2005, Dutch voters came out in huge numbers to defeat a draft constitutional treaty. And then in 2016, of course, the vote for Brexit. Does the European Union have have a demos or a people? And how do people experience the EU as, as a governing force in their lives or in terms of Europe as this political community that they ostensibly belong to? It, it does go back to the Maastricht Treaty and something that one of the sharper commentators at the time said about the treaty shortly after it was signed, this was in 1992. Wynne Godley, a famous economist, wrote an essay for the London Review of Books um, entitled Maastricht and all that. We, he, he points out this um, paradox that you're getting at, which is um, here was a you know, fairly obscure, very large treaty with fairly strict binding measures that would irrevocably fix um, exchange rate between exchange rates between European countries and that would have quite a profound impact on people's lives over generations because of how important management of the economy is and and uh, how fiscal policy in, in particular was uh, surrendered to European um, policymakers but he notes that the public discussion was very impoverished and, and, and there was very little public input and very little public understanding about the exact provisions of this treaty, which was written by lawyers and which was based on a certain form of economic thought, which happened to be ascendant at the time. And this hasn't quite changed, I think. Um, so what, what this is the result of is that the the European project from the beginning, in particular in the later phase, was an elite project and driven quite self-consciously by elites who were responding not only to economic problems after the fall of Bretton Woods, in other words, trying to stabilize European monetary arrangements after European countries ha- currencies had become depegged from the dollar, but also, as they saw it, problems with democratic governance of the economy, something that they saw as problematic. It was certainly a time in which there was little confidence in the ability of governments to responsibly conduct economic policy. So it was not only a reshaping of the economy, but also of the state. Uh, And it was, I think, conceived as a quasi-state or a proto-state that would not really have a demos in the original sense, one that has uh, a certain amount of purchase on public policy, at least in the policy domains that were considered important. This is something which the British historian Eric Hogsbaum noted quite early in the 2000s already as this whole constitutional process was taking off in the European Union. And one of his points was that the talk of a democratic deficit, so the idea that the European Union lacks the classical democratic legitimacy which uh, other nation states in Europe have, um, actually obscures the fact that so much of the European integration presupposes this democratic deficit itself. He says it wouldn't have worked without this democratic deficit and integration could actually not have taken off if um, there was more legitimacy because it would have been massively difficult to actually gather a European demos. Now, one of the opposing views to that is, of course, that of the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas, who has written a very famous book on 
so-called post-national constellations or the idea that since the 1990s, European nation states no longer have this correspondence between the state and the nation and therefore the European democratic community is now the forum of the future. And of course he's right insofar as every nation is a historical construction. Uh, I mean, we know that peasants were turned into Frenchmen in the 19th century as well and sort of national citizens can now be turned into Europeans. But as Dominic already pointed out, what is distinctly problematic about this process of European integration and which calls forth this political backlash you mentioned in 2005, then in 2016, but already also after 2008 with the debt crises, is that the European Union itself was built on profoundly demobilized societies. So it was the attempt to contain and discipline domestic populations and working classes mainly, which actually led to the process of European integration. And it also means that the construction of a European demos becomes much more difficult in societies in which the public sphere is so evacuated of political content and it's very difficult to actually have real discussions about the policy choices that uh, governments make. And therefore, I think the European Union is still stuck between a rock and a hard place where it's not yet a superstate, where it can't go fully supranational, but it's also no longer the classical post-war nation-state that we knew from the 50s and 60s. I should add, just to be a bit more concrete on this issue of the uh, European state or the EMU not requiring a truncation of democratic states for, to actually work, the main issue that people pointed out at the time was essentially the the tendency of politicians to conduct economic policy in line with their election cycle, and particularly uh, with regards to currency devaluations that would um, resuscitate the export competitiveness of their firms. In other words, if they devalue their currency, their goods would be priced cheaper and therefore more competitive in global markets. And this was quite frequently done, especially in, in, in uh, countries like Italy, um, which were more prone to inflation and, and, and high deficits. And this was seen as a huge problem because it exposed European countries to currency speculation and, and wild fluctuations in the exchange rates. So in other words, the typical problem usually faced by emerging markets nowadays still, so low and middle, middle income countries. And this is premised on two assumptions. One is that governments cannot be trusted with economic policy levers. And and this is you know, quite telling because it, it, it's, it follows from the same kind of set of ideas that the economy itself is in some way self-equilibrating. That actually the only thing that needs to, done, needs to be done by the government is uh, control the rate of change of the price level. In other words, conduct monetary, monetary policy response, uh, responsibly whereas the real economy would adjust um, as long as you kept budgets in line. Um, so I think very important to understand Europe as it currently is, is also to see which economic thought at the time was ascendant. And I think the early 90s were that and the, with that triumphalist moment in which the sort of anti-Keynesian and Keynesian conventionally neoliberal thought was uh, at its peak. And unfortunately, it was then that um, the European constitution uh, in this form was written. Yet, to what extent is neoliberalism, or more specifically German ordo-liberalism, baked into the very architecture of the EU and the Eurozone? And and how was that, to the extent that it was accomplished, accomplished? Because on the one hand, there, there are debt breaks and the ways that the euro imposes a sort of monetary dictatorship upon member states, something we very much saw during the debt crisis. But on the other hand, there are these massive agricultural subsidies secured 
in significant part by France, but also other countries, subsidies that I imagine neoliberals absolutely loathe. So generally speaking, does the EU serve this these Hayekian neoliberal ends of protecting the economy from democracy? Or does it also reflect a more variegated balance of class and social forces across Europe? It's true that, that it's a Frankenstein um, complex um, of, of different uh, policy trends and aspirations of the post-war era. Um, in the way that matters most, um, namely in monetary arrangement, it is a child of the late 80s and, and 90s, and it does reflect a particular brand of neoliberalism, if you like, um, which you refer to as order liberalism. And the ECB, indeed, was built on the blueprint of the German central bank, the Bundesbank. And there was a very heavy emphasis on tight money to keeping interest rates quite high and responding to any sort of aberration in the price level by um, hiking interest rates and emphasizing the importance of price stability to keeping inflation within certain bounds. Um, The agreed-upon target was eventually around or just under 2%, and it was made the so-called the lexicographical priority of the ECB, unlike, for instance, with the Fed, which has price stability in its mandate, but also financial stability and full employment, which is the legacy of the um, the Keynesian period. Uh, unfortunately, because the, the ECB was created in, in, in a very sort of anti-Keynesian context, it didn't have those, uh, those priorities in its mandate. It should be said, however, that the power of the Bundesbank reflected in the ECB did eventually wane so there are many decisions after the after the Maastricht treaty that do not reflect the preferences of the order liberals within um, the European uh, policy elites the inclusion of Italy in the currency area the the way the eastern german mark was converted into the into the Deutsch, into the western german deutsche mark um i think nowadays a lot of the hawkery in monetary terms and also in fiscal issues, doesn't simply rest on the influence of order liberals. It also rests on simply quite old-fashioned uh, conservative policymakers in country in, in other countries that suffered quite a great deal under sort of German monetary monetary uh, dictates. Uh, in Italy, for instance, or Spain, you'll find um, you know, fairly uh, hawkish policy elites wherever you look. The other thing that influenced the Maastricht Treaty and the EMU is not only order liberalism, it's also Friedmanite uh, monetarism. Friedman is credited with inventing something that was that became to be known as optimal currency era theory, which was then taken up and formalized by someone called Mundell, who eventually received a Nobel Prize for it. This set out a number of criteria that had to be fulfilled for a monetary union to work, for things that have to happen in exchange for surrendering monetary sovereignty. Um, unfortunately, now, uh, I think optimal currency area theory is regarded as a bit of an academic relic in that no country is an optimal currency area. But as I said, these ideas very much stuck around and were institutionalized to the extent that they can't easily be removed. Well, how is that? Spo- how was a currency union integrating so many different sorts of national economies with complex, distinct relationships with each other, with the global economy, and with the business cycle. How is that supposed to work? There are two variants of this kind of theory. The first variant was formalized in 1961. And one has to note a time in which there was still a great deal of confidence in governments uh, conducting economic policy and, and steering economies through the business cycle, was if you give up monetary uh, independence, you need 
a different kind of adjustment mechanism because you can no longer devalue your own currency because you don't have your own currency anymore. And what you need, therefore, is a great deal of labor market mobility. In other words, if there is a, an economic shock in one region, people should be easily should be um, you know have an easy time of packing up and just moving to another region. So, if there's a recession in you know, Detroit or Chicago, people should be able to, to move to California or New York or the South. And the historical analogy here is often the United States, by the way, and I'll get back to that in, in a second. And then what you also need is some form of coordinated policy. So in other words, countries can't be running their own policies um, with their electoral cycle. There needs to be some um, discipline in, in a concerted effort to um, align their, their different uh, fiscal policies. The other thing is there need to be transfers. So in other, if there's a shock in one part of the country, there need to be fiscal fiscal transfer to that country to stabilize that particular region, like it happens in the United States, of course. But transfers do not exist in the European Union, as we know, and they are quite contentious even within individual European countries. So the assumption that this would eventually come about is, um, I think, the, the, the greatest flaw of optimal currency area theory. In its second iteration... Even more so because in that version of it, there's the implicit assumption that a currency area will become optimal over time because of how it forces or compels countries to align their business cycles and do internal adjustments to become more similar to each other. In other words, there was an assumption that economic compulsion and sort of spillover would lead um, to the necessary um, reforms domestically, however socially incendiary they might be to form a more cohesive currency area. This is, I think, quite fantastical in, in political terms. It, it sort of assumes a level of um, uh, stability and, and democratic, or the absence of, uh, or the presence of certain class coalitions that simply don't exist. They don't even exist in the United States. In other words, there isn't, uh, there's a negligible amount of labor mobility in the United States. Uh, and, and by these criteria, not even the United States, and indeed no, other, no country in the world has those conditions to be an optimal currency area. And that's why I think that as an intellectual foundation for the Eurozone simply doesn't work out. And yeah, in the early 2000s, when the Euro was steadily being introduced in um, all the Eurozone countries, there were really wild predictions of economic convergence between countries where Germany was still had a pretty a solid industrial base at the time. It was one of the few countries that was able to resist deindustrialization. And then supposedly Germany's and Spain and Greece and Italy would converge on these common economic models. And what you saw in the 2000s and certainly after 2010s when the debt crisis actually kicked off is that this was not the case at all. What you saw in the South instead was huge reliance mainly on Northern credit, uh, the fueling of a service-based tourist economy, um, which um, didn't at all have the same productivity levels as, as you saw in the North. And actually those differentials have grown uh, under Eurozone um, under the Eurozone regime. So in that sense, it was really a spectacular misprediction um, as it was formulated in the 1990s. But again, I think we should be wary of imputing or attributing a sort of monocausal influence on the process of European integration as a whole. Uh, there's sometimes a tendency to just see it as a uniquely neoliberal product. Um, but again, uh, for example, 
the French Socialist Party, which just came out of the 1980s and the Mitterrand period, which had its own uh, austerity turn uh, in 1983, or the Tournant de Rigueur, as it was called, um, also tried to use European integration of basically achieving some of their French dreams of socialism on a supranational setting. Um, and they left a very strong birthmark on that Maastricht order as well. Um, and, for example, Jacques Delors, who was head of the commission, um, in the 1980s, did have ideas of a social Europe, um, which also left some concrete policy legacies, no matter how miserably uh, some of them failed. And if you look at the way, for example, German order liberals have responded to the behavior of something like the ECB in the last 10 years, you can clearly see that they don't recognize their neoliberal brainchild at all anymore. And there's been a very big divergence between uh, rhetoric and reality on that level. So despite the fact that there's a variety of interests and forces that made the EU, that it's clearly more than just an ordo-liberal fantasy. To what extent does it still overwhelmingly serve the interests of particular member states, namely high-value export-powered, wage-suppressing Germany? And then where does France, which is not as powerful as Germany economically, but does have a large population, the second largest economy and geopolitical power, fit into that? Or Italy, which I'm always shocked to remind myself has the third largest economy in Europe, but whose growth has flatlined since Maastricht. Does the reality of the EU and debates about it, debates about its future, does that neatly reflect these geopolitical interests and strategic wagers of its most powerful member states? I think one has to be quite cautious here. Um, there are always, I think there's a, there's a conventional uh, narrative here. I think most often on the left, but also on the right, which is European economic policy making reflects the preferences of German business elites and indeed of northern business elites. Um, so the, the, the creditor countries, which um, have you know, large trade surpluses and who have su supplied the, the, the so-called periphery, which is mostly southern um, and eastern Europe with capital in the years um, running up to the, Euro the, the Eurozone crisis. Um, that they are the beneficiaries of a system that is skewed in their favor. I think uh, Anton already mentions this, uh, mentioned this. This is, I think, somewhat misleading in the sense that the cause of the Eurozone crisis was indeed, I think, mismanaged by the ECB, but also, um, you know, more, more fundamentally, a glut of capital from uh, the north of Europe which um, streamed into countries like Greece or, or, or Spain and caused these large real estate bubbles and, and eventually ended up becoming a, a private debt bubble, which then exploded and had to be bailed out by the sovereign and which then led to um, very high levels of indebtedness in these countries. But I think what has to be quite clear here, it's not quite clear whether these countries would have been better off outside of the Eurozone. I think that's the important counterfactual here. The notion that there was uh, the lack of sovereignty within the Eurozone, especially vis-a-vis -vis Germany, is something that was caused by monetary unification, I think doesn't quite hold up to scrutiny. If you look at the previous arrangements, before the Eurozone, um, which started in 1999-2000, there were, there were different kind of monetary arrangements in Europe um, that somehow bound all these different currencies and with them their economies to um, something that was more stable. So since the 
fall of Bretton Woods, there had been something called Snake, in which there was some pegging of currencies to a fixed parity. Then there was something called the Deutschmark Block, in which countries were successively compelled to peg their currencies to the Deutschmark, which was quite stable, and therefore had to run similarly restrictive and you know, onerously tight monetary policies. And then there was the so-called European Exchange Mechanism, which formalized these pegs to um, a sort of proto-euro currency that was some sort of weighted, weighted average of all the other currencies. The, the fate of these countries within these arrangements was actually more severe. In other words, they were more bound to German monetary orthodoxy and didn't have, as they do in the euro, some sort of forum in which they can influence how the institutions actually work. So in this case, they, uh, you know, European elites from everywhere participate in the European Central Bank. Uh, they staff it, they staff um, the commission, and they have a voice in the European Council. So I think it's certainly an improvement over those um, previous arrangements. And I should, uh, I should also add that while it is true that Germany has profited immensely from integrating especially the sort of low-wage Eastern European countries, and indeed that also explains the level of wage repression in Germany, because um, to borrow a phrase from Mark Blythe, for German workers, globalization begins 100 miles east of Berlin. In other words, that's sort of the, the whip that German companies can use to remain competitive, even though they don't really have to. They could probably stomach quite a bit of wage growth because German products have great uh, you know, elasticities. In other words, if their price rises by a bit, there will still be ample demand for them because of how sophisticated these products are and, and, and given the external demand from China and the developing world. But again, I think for emerging markets, countries like Poland, um, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary have quite a good deal compared to lower middle income countries in, in the rest of the world in that they they get to diversify their export mix and they get to build a manufacturing base, which took quite a lot more pain and time to do in Taiwan or South Korea or Japan. Of course, that doesn't, this doesn't mean that they end up in stable and politically savory policies, because we know that politically these countries are quite um, dysfunctional, certainly quite right-wing and reactionary and, and indeed anti-European Union. But I think one has to be cautious in, in, in projecting this sort of Germany against the rest uh, onto these arrangements. Well, you mentioned the counterfactual within Europe, but gen- more generally, the counterfactual is just the ordinary capitalist regional and world systems and its various disciplinary methods. And we know from the history of third world decolonization, for example, that this is by no means a, a realm of economic sovereignty. No, quite the opposite. I mean, what we're seeing now is the enorm- the unbelievable crisis in the in, in the emerging world, which is precisely because of that precarity in in the international system, which unless you're the United States, you are exposed to movements in the the dollar and capital flight um, and speculations against your currency and you have to require reserves. You ha- you're forced to run trade surpluses and therefore you're forced to repress wages and, and, and create excess savings. It's, it's qu- quite a self-help sort of archaic system which Europe escaped during the Bretton Woods era, in which you had fixed rates, but also you had restrictions on short-term capital flows, and which has been trying to, in some way, reproduce since, so that it can escape these the fates of, of other countries, but also you know, Italy and, and, and the UK as early as the 90s, uh, or as recently as the 90s have been, have been the victims of, of, of runs against their currency. So even European countries aren't... Um, aren't excused from that kind of dynamic. And I would 
slightly dissent maybe on two points of what Dom has said. Um, the first is, as he said, that even a Greece outside of the Eurozone would have maybe faced an Argentinian-style debt crisis um, at the beginning of the 2010s. So it would have been exposed to a different kind of debt. But at the same time, the construction of the Eurozone and its interaction with the institutions does pervert national political cultures in, in such a way is that a choice is completely removed from the political era as such. So if you're Argentinian, you're facing a debt crisis, you can at least choose where you're going to cut and you can have a political deliberation of how you pay for adjustment. While now what you saw with Greece and its sort of fiscal waterboarding is that everything was imposed by diktat and that gives people a sense that they can't even choose how they are to suffer in the first place. So suffering might be inevitable for these types of emerging markets, but at the same time, the political mediation of what kind of suffering you have to undergo is completely depoliticized and removed, and this does produce additional perverse uh, effects. What I would also add is, yes, there is no sense in saying that the entirety of the Eurozone in the EU is just designed and ordered for the whims of, for example, German export capital. But there are these transnational class coalitions between respective national elites, which uh, have ben benefited immensely from the current architecture of the Eurozone. So when you look at German export capital and how it then recycles that surpluses to some Mediterranean leads, for example, um, in Greece, um, which likes the country to remain credit dependent and doesn't need any visions of sort of national economic development, uh, it's obvious, for example, that a section of the Greek elite doesn't want to opt out of this arrangement. Well, if you look at the Italian elite, which always had a far more developed industrial economy, as you say, still the third economy in Europe, their Euroscepticism within Italian elites is actually a bit higher than in Greek cases because they know that the performance of German export capital in that arrangement actually imperils their own industrial base. So the transnational class coalitions are never monolithic, but they do exist and they hold a check on many of these uh, policy levers. You mentioned that, that Mitterrand, in and, and his turn to austerity, that he still hoped that European integration might be a way to secure social democratic ends. And preparing for this interview, I read this introductory essay to a really nice volume that Phenomenal World put out on social democracy in Europe. And it reads, quote, the popular story of neoliberalism's rise justly associates the turn with personalities such as Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and Paul Volcker. But in much of continental Europe, it was socialist parties and their social democratic governments that liberalized the economy against their stated programs and the interests of their constituents. And this was a huge shift. These days we think of social democrat colloquially as being to the right of socialists, but even when the socialist and social democratic parties turned away from revolution in the post-war period in Europe, their goal really remained achieving socialism by way of these transformative reforms. How did that all change with the onset of the crises of the 1970s, most dramatically perhaps with Mitterrand in France? And how did the provisional resolution of those crises in the 1980s, how did that neoliberalize those parties and pave the way for the rise of a European Union that, that would make even these basic Keynesian social democratic policy measures so difficult to implement? Yeah, I think we need to keep a double lens as we're answering this question. Insofar as 
the neoliberal transformation of some of these social democrats um, doesn't always have the same chronology. For example, if you look at the German SPD, which had a conversion to the social market economy already in the late 50s, while in France, actually, it's more a product of the 1980s, so they don't all conjecturally experience the same adjustment process. Um, I think what's important to understand in the context of the 1970s and 1980s is that there are ideological factors involved. So you have sort of called faction in the French Socialist Party mainly grouping around someone like uh, Michel Rocard or someone like Jacques Delors, who was always far more open about their desire to integrate market-friendly reforms and socialism or pursuing a form of market socialism that would let go of certain plans for nationalization or state steering of industry. Uh, so there is an ideological faction within those parties which is trying to turn those parties towards the market. But at the same time, as Dominic mentioned before, it's also the currency instability and the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system in the 1970s, 1980s that coerces or heavily conditions how the social democratic parties actually conduct policy. And there you don't need a so-called seduction thesis or the idea that social democrats suddenly began reading Hayek and were seduced by his ideas to actually see that many of them made a pragmatic turn towards the market as the only way of both securing the electoral base and at the same time avoiding a conflict with capital which would be uh, too dramatic. And I think the Mitterrand government is a very good example of this insofar as there were voices in the government in the early 80s which was elected on the so-called Programme Commun, which is a program they signed together with uh, the Communist Party, which uh, promised a very ambitious program of nationalizations and of welfare expansion, which also would mean a retreat from the Atlanticist order and uh, distancing from NATO, uh, but which proposed a so-called Albanian a solution where France would basically become economically autarkic, would entirely rely on nuclear energy, would not need dollars to actually buy oil and gas on international markets, and basically insulate itself both from Germany and from these other countries that were steadily transitioning to neoliberalism. Um, the issue with the Albanian option, of course, is that it doesn't just require a huge sacrifice on behalf of the French population, but that internationally, both at the Bundesbank, but also with the Fed, uh, which has just uh, gone through the Volcker shock, the policy space in which these French social democrats in government operate is much more, much more constrained. So the turn towards neoliberalism is both ideological and pragmatic, is that they try to maintain some of their previous electoral goals, but they have to do so in an environment that is completely inhospitable to anything they're pursuing. And then the promise of European integration is that you can transfer some of those goals from the national uh, to the international level, but of course they then have to contend with a recently reunified Germany that now has a massive labor pool to draw from, that still has a strong industrial base, that can industrialize the East while maintaining most of the industrial capacity in the West. And they completely misjudge that process. And it turns out that this new European sphere is actually not the arena for socialism as they imagined it was in the 1980s. I think it's very important to mention Italy in this context. And I think it's also important that we talk about Italy because it's such a, an aberration not only within the European Union, but also within you know, G7 economies. It's one of the largest economies in the world. With you know, It's very technologically sophisticated, has a huge manufacturing sector, but its growth has been completely flatlining over the last 20 years. And there's not a, there, there are no good explanations as to why that is the case. One of them, uh, certainly, there's, a, there's often emphasized on the left, is 
that the, the Italian political economy simply can't survive um, or can't prosper within the constraints of the Eurozone. One way in which this pragmatic turn that Anton mentioned was empowered was in the preparation for monetary unification. In Italy, this was framed as the the external constraint, the so-called vicolo esterno. In other words, policymakers evoked this um, constraint, the, the, the coming membership of the euro, as an opportunity to buy, tie our own hands so that we can clean up some of our domestic mess. In other words, it gave some factions within the Social Democrats and Christian Democrats in Italy to clean up what they saw were the inefficiencies in the Italian economy. And I would emphasize that Italy by this time had pretty remarkable uh, institutional problems that were already um, severely imperiling productivity growth, which is, I think, you know, I think everyone agrees, the, the long-term determinant of uh, living standards. And they embarked on a really spectacular um, campaign of uh, liberalizing labor markets to keep wages low, introducing you know, short-term contracts, cutting public spending wherever possible, um, making hiring and firing more easy. You know, privatization was a huge thing in the 90s, and it was all done under the pretext of getting inflation down, of getting um, the debt level uh, down. Um, Italy's stock of public debt is very high and remains very high, unsurprisingly, given the absence of growth. Um, and this was all done in the context of preparing for the euro. And, and, and what that really means is it was an entirely self-inflicted wound or series of wounds by people who would who thought they had the right economic policy mix to revitalize growth in Italy. It turns out they were doing exactly the wrong thing. They managed to completely crush wage growth and um, domestic demand in Italy. And they locked Italy into this equilibrium in which they no longer relied on innovation-led growth, in which they sort of innovate and, 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 and can produce productivity gains by investing into new technologies and, and, and in the manufacturing sector, but into a low-wage form of competition in which they could not compete against Germany because Germany's internal ability to, 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 to repress wages is greater, but also they had no chance then competing with China and the rest of the emerging world, which happened to be coming up at that time. So I think it's very important to think about Italy not only in the context of um, the current constraints, so the fiscal rules and so on and so forth, but also of the choice of the Italian policy elite, including the Social Democrats, um, in the 90s but also in the 80s, to bind their hands and to deliberately, I think, neuter the Italian or Italian prospects for economic growth. And, and on that point, another thing distinct about Italy is that the Italian left's share of the electorate has long been just about as anemic as the country's economic growth. Oh, absolutely. And and, and and more remarkably is that until the 80s, Italy had the largest communist party in any European country, <laughs> which then evaporated um, more or less overnight. So um, in Italy, in the early 90s, there, was, um, there were a series of political scandals which resulted in, in a, a number of very public trials called the uh, Manipulites, or the, the, the clean hands trial, so that people were trying to weed out the enormous amount of corruption um, presence in the Italian Senate, Senate and elsewhere. Many parties ended up, ended up being dissolved, including the old um, socialist and communist parties, and many politicians fled into exile um, afterwards. Unfortunately, I think this process of um, cleaning up the, the Italian 
political system was halted by the election of Berlusconi in, in, in the <laughs> 90s. Um, the legal system wasn't reformed. Unfortunately, it benefits the, um, you know, the, these sort of politicians who engage in graft and other activities. And Italy's institutions had always been ma- um, ma- um, this sort of oleg- these, these mini oligarchies um, in which the rents of the elites are, are very well protected and in which there's sort of an exclusionary welfare system in which benefits mostly pensioners. But it, this didn't matter in the post-war era for growth because of how of the nature of the growth until the 70s and 80s which is mostly catch-up growth um, and, and Italy was very very successful in there in those years and in fact surpassed the United Kingdom in productivity growth in the 80s the so-called il, um, il sorpasso so the, the moment in which Italy was actually not only converging on Germany and the UK but actually surpassed them but I think things eventually changed uh, both in terms of the policy that was inflicted on them and that it, then suddenly the, the growth that was required required institutions that weren't just dominated by extractive elites and you know small companies run by families. And the solutions to these problems were unfortunately the wrong kind, as I just outlined, because, partly because also that it, it was hard to do anything that actually threatened the rents of these elites. And therefore, it, it hasn't happened to this day, unfortunately. I think it's important to realize that the crisis of the Italian left pre-exists the existence of the Euro cage. Like the Euro cage might entrench it and might consolidate it to a certain extent, but there's a famous story of one of the last leaders of the Italian Communist Party, Achille Lucchetto, who actually travels to New York in the middle of the 90s and visits Wall Street and visits um, these um, big financial institutions and calls them the center of civilization or <laughs> pyramids of civilization. So you have to imagine the psychic trauma of presiding over one of the biggest communist parties in uh, Europe and then basically dissolving your own party into this other party and having to completely give up on your program. Um, And it's mainly the 2000s that lock in this profound um, demobilization, which we also spoke about before. Um, But as we say, it's the Eurozone which has really exacerbated this problem, but it pre-exists the governance issues which Italian leads see in Italian society in the 1990s, they see a very militant and well-organized working class that can make inflationary wage demands and to basically suppress um, this boisterous and dangerous working class. They use, as Dominic said, these European institutions as an external constraint but end up basically detonating the foundations of their own growth model. I want to return to discussing the the European left in a few minutes, but first we should address the Eurozone crisis, this really pivotal moment in Europe's history head on. Why did the Troika, the Eurogroup of Finance Ministers, the IMF and the ECB, alongside Northern Europe led, above all else, by Angela Merkel's Germany, why did they remain so attached to their brand of fiscal discipline? as the European economy and politics spiraled into such incredible crisis. Was that baked into the EU's architecture or was that politically contingent to the moment? And what were the consequences of those decisions across Europe? Dominic, you write, quote, At the helm of Europe's largest and most solvent economy, Merkel found herself in a position to impose her framework. The standard conception of Europe's problems as a sovereign debt crisis reflects this position as does the response. 
the resistance to debt finance stimulus when it was most needed, the push for austerity measures when they were most harmful, and the extension of loans under conditions of structural reforms that worsened underlying institutional problems. What was the actual crisis that Merkel and company's framing of the Eurozone crisis as a sovereign debt crisis obscured? I think it's quite telling because Merkel, perhaps less so, but her um, famously hawkish finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble, (laughs) was more publicly vocal about this. He actually published an op-ed in the Financial Times, I believe in 2011 or 2012, where he said, uh, we need austerity and fiscal discipline because our crisis is caused by too much government spending and too much an excess of government debt and therefore we need to cut budgets and that will somehow restore confidence in the market and therefore credit provision and private spending will somehow be resuscitated by um, this fiscal discipline. And there was a whole intellectual foundation of why um, fiscal contractions would be expansionary and it's usually some form of confidence theory that's evoked or some ridiculous model that posits that I, as a household, will anticipate future tax levels and therefore spend more if, government, if the government spends less. It's it's nonsensical. But the construal of the crisis as a crisis of sovereign debt is, is crucial here. And it's a misnomer, as you say, because this was not a crisis of sovereign debt. It was a crisis of private debt. And to understand why or where this private debt crisis comes from, we have to go back to the 90s very briefly, which is the period in which the financial sector is responding to the impending monetary unification by engorging themselves on the debt securities of the European periphery. So Greek bonds or Italian bonds or Spanish bonds or Portuguese bonds all had much, much higher yields. In other words, the return for investors were much higher, but they were also considered much riskier and therefore governments paid much higher borrowing costs. Greek Greece, for instance, paid 25% in the, in the early 90s on their 10-year bond. But this quickly fell, uh, and all of these peripheral bonds converged on the yields of the core economy bonds. So in particular, Germany, which has very low borrowing costs because market price, markets price their risks in, in a certain way because Germany is, has tight money and it's quite fiscally frugal, etc., etc. And... Markets and banks did this because they assumed that the because devaluation risk was gone and because inflation risk was was going to be gone as well under the ECB, that this price the price of these bonds was accurate. But of course, I, I think that that's the conventional narrative. But I, but what actually happened is when these banks bought up an unbelievable amount of um, periphery debt, which was suddenly very valuable and, and low risk, they also quite plainly thought that if they engorged themselves on this risk, they would be eventually bailed out if they become too big because they didn't genuinely believe that uh, Greek bonds were equivalent to German bonds because Greek was still issuing its its debts independently. And there are actually uh, tape recordings of uh, an Irish bank in this instance that that show quite clearly that the executives of the, the financial sector knew what they were doing and knew that if they become big enough, and there was a crisis, and these yields would be would uh, diverge again. The price of the bonds would then fall. That they would be bailed out by the sovereign, and they could push the mountain of debt in the private sector onto the shoulders of the public, which is precisely what happened. So, countries like Spain were actually very fiscally responsible in the uh, pre-crisis era, 
But because of the capital coming in from from Germany, and because of the inflation of, um, in particular, the real estate sector in, in in Spain and the the private debt bubble there, suddenly the Spanish banks were bankrupt, and the Spanish sovereign was implicated in the bailout of these banks, and therefore it had it ended up with a huge amount of debt on its books. And also because growth collapsed and debt is usually a fraction. So it's it's um, a ratio of debt to GDP. And if, if GDP collapses, debt is also much, much higher. That's the first way in which this is a misnomer. It was largely private debt, which was then pushed onto the shoulders of the public. In Greece, one has to be careful uh, to say this, it was a solvency crisis. Greece had cooked their books with the help of Goldman Sachs, um, I should mention. And they were insolvent as a state. But unfortunately, the Troika pretended that this was a liquidity crisis and that all the Greeks needed was more loans under uh, onerous conditions that would actually make it harder to pay back these loans. And the reason was, in the initial bailout at least, that it was mostly French and German banks that were exposed to Greek debt. As I mentioned, they had bought up quite a bit of it in the um, preceding decades. So the first bailout of, of, I think, over 200 billion euros on it, on the Greek economy, which is a tiny fraction, like 2% of the European economy, almost all of it was immediately transported back to um, make the German and French banks whole, essentially, because Merkel had already pushed through a domestic stimulus uh, in Germany, and she didn't want to do another one. She didn't want to bail out the banks again. So she decided to push this through in order to push those debts, which were also the irresponsibility of German banks, onto the shoulders of the Greek public. And just one more sentence, the reason why the Troika continues with its um, destruction of the Greek economy with a second uh, bailout program and a second memorandum that was signed in 2015 was A, it couldn't risk a run through the European bond markets, which would have you know, the so-called so contagion risk. It would have then suddenly uh, infected, so, so to say, Italy and Spain. And then because there's no because the architecture of the Eurozone is incomplete, it would have imperiled the Eurozone as a whole, but also because there was a left-wing government in power in Greece. And I think the threat of the good example had to be eliminated in a way that um, they needed, to be, they needed to, to be forced to surrender to the demand of the Troika, however irrational and however cruel these demands were. And, and this is exactly what the banks predicted. You're saying that they'd get bailed out. And so you have so many trained economists and so few of them could see a classic moral hazard. It wasn't really in the interest of their financial sectors to see it. To, to be very simple about, I mean, the, the the least schematic way in which you can phrase it is that elites in 2008 and prior to the years on crisis in 2010 made the same mistake that elites did before 1929, which is to underestimate the catastrophic amount of financial risk in the system. And the policy response of the ECB was as catastrophically bad as the policy response of the Fed was in 1929. The US was lucky that it had at its helm Ben Bernanke, who had written his PhD about the Depression and about the Fed's response to the Depression. But unfortunately, the hour was great in Europe, but the um, the people in charge were very small, unfortunately. And I, I think in the gallery of ghouls we're currently surveying, I think there should be a special place also for Trichet, who was at the head of the ECB at the beginning, who 
um, actually kept interest rates high and thereby exacerbated the crisis or artificially engineered this massive recession which plunged large parts of southern Europe into mass unemployment. But it's also because the effects are not just exclusively European and they don't just pertain to the periphery. So Trichet's refusal also leads to a massive crisis on these international markets, which makes it much more difficult, for example, for northern African countries to actually borrow money, for example, from French banks to finance their grain imports. And there is an argument to be made that actually part of the Arab Spring and how it kicked off was exacerbated or was worsened by the inaction or the inactivity that you saw on a European policy level. I think more severely what happens when you have mass unemployment in these Mediterranean countries such as Spain and also Italy is that of course drives an enormous amount of these young unemployed people in those economies towards economies that can absorb um, labor shocks that are relatively open. And the classical example of this, for example, is Britain, which wasn't in the Eurozone, of course, but did have an open labor market with these uh, Eurozone countries. And that basically inadvertently, because Britain is such a low wage and flexibilized economy, into the lender or the rather the employer of last resort for loads of these southern European economies in recession. So the classical story of the Spanish graduate who has a dentistry degree, who is now working in a cafe in London, is a clear reflection of this. And it also fuels much of the labor market competition, which leads to resentment in the Brexit referendum. So if you construct all those causal chains, whether it's the Arab Spring or whether it's the Brexit referendum of 2016, they can all be traced back to this really cataclysmic moment of inaction on behalf of European policy molecules in the early 2010s. Even as the Troika crushed Greece, crushed the Syriza government in Greece, and forced countries across Europe into the 2012 fiscal compact, which required member states to write these budgetary constraints into their constitutions, the ECB did adapt. It pivoted away from its conservative principles by implementing what's called both here in the U.S. and in Europe and elsewhere, unconventional monetary policy. First, amid the Eurozone crisis that began around 2010, and then again with the onset of the pandemic. What what have these two moments of unconventional monetary policy looked like? And how have they, in both moments respectively, changed the EU? So the first policy that is described as unconventional is are these large bond purchasing programs that the um, central banks around the world eventually all engaged in and, and until recently continue to engage in. They're usually referred to as quantitative easing. Uh, easing. In other words, the uh, quantitative easing, easing, I should say. And they they involve central banks buying a certain amount of government debt or government debt securities from financial institutions, usually in in, in exchange for reserve assets, which would mean there's sort of an asset swap that goes on, which keeps bank balance sheets clean, but also which it also keeps uh, the yields or the borrowing costs of sovereigns low because there's continued demand for their, these debt securities and therefore you you sort of prevent an explosion of borrowing costs and, and the spiraling crisis. The ECB actually doesn't do this at first. The ECB focuses on lending uh, to financial institutions um, with collateral and sort of repurchasing agreements, but then eventually it also embarks on these large um, bond purchases. The second moment, far more pivotal, is 
when the management of the ECB changes, it's taken over by the now still Italian Prime Minister, then um, central banker Mario Draghi. Uh, he became the head of the ECB and he gives this famous speech in a conference in London that the ECB will do whatever it takes to stabilise the European bond market. And this is simply a commitment, a credible commitment to buy as many bonds as it, take, uh, as it takes to, um, to to keep yields down and without actually having to buy any bonds, uh, the, the euro crisis for then over because suddenly you don't have this contagion risk anymore because you have a grown-up central bank all of a sudden, which means that it does what <laughs> central banks should do and have done in many parts of the world for quite a while, act as a lender of last resort. They didn't even have to buy any bonds. They just had to say and credibly commit to doing so, which is enough to stave off these liquidity crises in bond markets. And this um, gives everyone quite a bit of breathing room. Suddenly, Italy is out of the doldrums. And it's also in conjunction with interest rates being incredibly low, so being essentially zero. And and that's when the, the ECB sort of comes into its own, and it, tr- it had to do so within its extremely legalistic and, cons- and constraining mandate. And it had to do so because it was, in a way, forced to be the only crisis respondent in the absence of any ability of European states to respond fiscally, partly because they had to stick to these fiscal rules at the European level, and because decisions have to be made unanimously in the European institutions, and partly because domestically there isn't actually that much pressure behind expansionary fiscal policy, because the uh, the coalitions that supported large Keynesian sort of slightly inflationary policies that existed in the 70s and 60s, uh, up to the 70s, I should say, are simply no longer there. So you have, going along with all these developments, the, the emergence of a deflationary block in Europe, but also everywhere else in, in in the US too the you know the Obama stimulus ends up, end up ends up being way too small and this forces the central banks to be crisis managers even though they would prefer not to because it, they face a great deal of political backlash but suddenly the euro the eurozone it becomes this strange place in which the only respondent to the crisis is the central bank a, a new version of the purchasing of these bond purchases is the so-called pandemic purchasing program um, which also ha- functions similarly to, 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 to QE, but has a d- different official designation and a, a sort of a different official purpose and is done under different circumstances. So it officially has, officially bond buying in the EU had a so-called capital key so that they would buy, they would be forced to buy a certain amount of German bonds and Italian bonds given their weight in overall years on GDP. But I think these newer f- phases of bond purchasing have sort of gotten rid of that in the sense that they're doing what is called yield curve control. In other words, they, they, they will simply try to adjust all the yields where they have to, but they they can't really do it legally, but they do it sort of inefficiently and they need some sort of legal justification for it. So that the edifice of the mandate has sort of slowly, slowly broken down over time, even though officially it, hasn't, it has yet to be reformed. Anton? Yeah, and I think it's important to remember the sort of ontology of the European Union that we tried to construct at the beginning, where the ECB as a kind of supranational institution becomes this default or this sort of emergency crisis manager, which otherwise it couldn't become precisely because it has this degree of independence, because there are all kinds of veto players or national governments who would like it to stop with these ambitious rescue programs. 
because they represent uh, respective domestic constituencies that are part of the deflationary block and see QE as somehow decimating for example, the savings of their pensioners, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, the risk is, of course, that the central bank doesn't have a clear democratic mandate. So the Fed, of course, is not the most democratic institution on the planet, but at least there's a far clearer degree of political control that comes with that. While with the ECB, it's very detached from any concrete policy influence that European citizens could have on it. Um, Although the democratic role of the ECB has always been quite ambiguous. What you did see, for example, in the elections that led to the victory, for example, of the Five Star Movement, there the ECB consciously decided to maintain its bond-buying program and not send uh, Italy into a spiral, which meant that they did see their task not just as blackmailing the country to not elect a populist government, basically, but to make sure that Italy would stay in a financially safe situation and be able to have its elections in peace. So in that sense, the ECB evokes democratic backlash, but because it's a necessary crisis stabilizer, it now fulfills this sort of default democratic role it didn't have before. Although that's, of course, a very limited benchmark, and I don't know whether that's the model of an activist central bank that you actually should be having, namely, oh, they didn't decide to blackmail (laughs) the country. That is, uh, those are the criteria by which we have to function. (laughs) But I should add, I mean, people tend to to praise Draghi as the man who, who, you know, saved the ECB and indeed uh, saved Europe or any any of the Eurozone crisis, but it's in his involvement in the Greek fiasco is, is quite conspicuous in that he threatened in a very sort of Circuitous way to shut off emergency liquidity assistance to Greek to Greek banks, essentially running that would rent, would have rendered Greek banks bankrupt um, right before the referendum in Greece that the Greek government held um, in order to decide whether they have to sign the new sign off on the new bailout, with the very obvious um, motive to terrorize the Greek people um, and, and to make them vote in a certain way. And, and the, the result would have been people couldn't have gotten money out of their ATMs and probably would have gone hungry for a while. Um, that was Draghi's idea. And he even, I mean, he, he Draghi operates with a great deal of secrecy and he, he doesn't really talk to many people around him uh, at the ECB. And he actually requested a an external legal opinion on this and then had the legal opinion sealed in order to sort of cover his tracks. So I think one shouldn't think of him as a technocratic player only. He's very much a member of the political establishment as well and quite cunning politically. We talked about the neoliberalization of European socialist parties a little bit back. What then drove their Pasakification, referring to the Greek Social Democratic Party, PASOK's sudden collapse in the midst of the Eurozone crisis? And does that collapse of social democratic parties amid the Eurozone crisis does it relate to or maybe maybe even just echo the precipitous fall of of the major communist parties still giant in France and Italy as as late as the 1990s yeah i think this is a a difficult question um most of the social democratic parties uh, we talk about were hemorrhaging or losing members already throughout the 2000s so i think the 2008 or post 2008 crisis manage seals their fate in a way that was undergoing uh, for a long time already partly because of the rise as you say or the disappearance of some of these classical social actors which usually made wage demands and they basically become 
countries that preside over these market transitions, um, sorry, they become parties that preside over these market transitions in their countries and basically want to facilitate uh, generalized access to credit rather than stimulating wage growth. This is something you very clearly see in the Spanish case. Um, it's mainly that many of these parties have also undergone a very deep change of personnel in the 2000s and 1990s, where most of the trade union members or people who had sort of long uh, political histories within the party are traded or exchanged for a meritocracy, many of academics or consultants that have a very distinct or different um, philosophy when it comes to governing. And when they are faced with the fallout of the 2008 crisis in Europe and then with the debt crisis, their response is not the usual reflex that the social democratic parties might still have had in the 60s and 70s, but as, for example, Stephanie Mudge shows in her book Leftism Reinvented, they're mainly quite technocratic and actually quite hawkish, or not as hawkish as their right-wing opponents, but they certainly don't go for the classical left-wing recipes that their predecessors go for. And of course, what you see in Greece with the case of PASOK, um, if you have a 25% contraction of GDP over a period, um, there is no way you can actually camouflage or masquerade what's happening with any amount of PR, and you're basically also uh, undermining your own base. Um, you can also clearly see this with the French PS, which then gets elected under François Hollande on a promise to sort of take on the financial sector and uh, take on the speculators, which basically ends up continuing the austerity program they was elected on getting rid of. And I don't think anyone needs a sort of... <laughs> how shall I say, needs a, a visionary view into the future to see that this will persocify or this will remove any remaining basis of support for these social democrats at the time. If you just buy into the governing philosophy and thereby basically take away any way to buy of consent from your constituency, then you're going to disappear as a party. I think that the, the epic punishment of social democratic parties and lefty parties in the 2010s is the culmination of a long process, um, in most cases anyway, of acquiescence to neoliberal policies and of internal struggles that turning out in favor of, of the sort of reformist elements that in Britain, for instance, are called Blairites or in uh, in, in the UK, uh, in, in the US, uh, probably equivalent to the sort of Clintonite turn in the Democratic Party. In the in some cases, it's more severe. Um, in Germany, for instance, the Democratic Party, uh, the, the Social Democratic Party was heavily involved not only during the Euro crisis, but actually at the beginning of the euro in both drafting and um, signing off on the sort of worst kind of labor market reforms that are implicated in actually causing the euro crisis in the sense that they repress German wages and that leads to you know, excess savings which then are imported to the periphery which caused the, the, the debt crises there. But also... The 2004 Hartz reforms. Exactly. There were a series of labor market reforms referred to as the Hartz reforms and they are seen to have put a lid on wage growth in Germany and sort of skewed the the income balance and created all these savings in the corporate sector and among rich households. Uh, but it also drafted the so-called debt break. And th the commitment of Social Democrats and also the Green Party in, in Germany to fiscal discipline was very strange, partly based on sort of, um, uh, idiosyncratic German attitudes towards <laughs> fiscal policy, I want to be very polite there, <laughs> but um, also be, for some very ridiculous reason, I mean, the, the motivation was that they wanted to 
take the winds out of the sails of the Christian Democrats. In other words, if we have fiscal discipline, they won't be able to spend um, along the, elect- the electoral cycle and therefore we have an advantage or we take away one of their advantages uh, and constrain each other in that sense. And the debt break, which is a formalization of German fiscal, fiscal rules that was put into the constitution in 2009 in Germany, worsened all the sort of problems of the lack of German domestic demand and domestic investment because it essentially makes sure that the deficit in the end, after sort of a complicated procedure of calculating the deficit, has to be zero at the communal level and I think point, uh, point 0.4 at the federal level, which is um, a percent of GDP, I should say. And this is quite strange and unfortunately has just worsened um, these domestic problems in Germany. Although these rules, as are the European rules, are currently suspended um, and probably will be suspended even further over the years because I think the Europeans are slowly starting to notice that this is uh, not how you conduct economic policy, but they're struggling politically to find a solution to reform these rules. The only thing I'd add in terms of long-term factors that contributed to the weakening of those social democratic parties, except for the change in policy personnel and the different governing philosophy that was adopted in the 1990s, is that there are, of course, these global processes of deindustrialization, which eat away at the classical sociological base of these parties. But there were also very conscious choices to basically target a different electorate throughout the 1990s because that industrial working class was seen as too boisterous and contributing to inflationary dynamics. And this is the long march of the so-called Brahmanization of the centre-left, which Thomas Piketty has um, described in very statistically rich terms. Um, And it goes back to a very old dilemma for 20th century social democracy, where they saw that they maybe couldn't win majorities by just relying on the votes of the industrial working class, so the middle class basically had to conclude it as well. Of course, the risk of including the middle class is that the middle class has certain consumption preferences, which um, means they would like to ex- uh, import certain things that imperils the basis of working class employment, etc., etc. But in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, certainly in the German, but also in the French cases, there is now a conscious direction within those parties to actually target middle class over working class voters as such. And this, of course, means that the European order, which is constructed in the 1990s, which has price stability and consumer sovereignty as uh, most of its main goals, um, is a very good bargain for that new electorate they're trying to target. But of course, what happens after 2008, certainly in Spain, is that it becomes far more difficult to actually even buy off those constituencies with these promises of increased consumption. And again, pasokification almost becomes an inevitable fate for those parties once rhetoric and reality begin to diverge so dramatically. In some countries, those, those old left institutions have been replaced by new left oppositions from La France Insoumise in France and Podemos in Spain, Syriza in Greece, Dalinka in Germany and the Corbyn Project in the UK. In an editorial in for the New F Review, Susan Watkins called these new groups radical social democrats. They, they featured small, less coherent, but youthful social bases. They centered on a leader more than a program. They were defined maybe more by media strategy than conventional organizational forms, something I discussed with Paolo Garballo a while back. What is your assessment of the characteristics of these new left parties or formations that emerged after the crisis? What what became of them and what was their legacy? Because by 2020, it seemed that the new left populists had been mostly defeated. Why? 
I think there are a variety of factors involved. Um, so it was highly conditioned by some of the hard objective constraints about the Eurozone we also talked about. Um, firstly, um, there is a political context which is very important for these parties, and I think you rightly see them as the expression of an organic crisis that is internal to social democracy. So we call them left populists, and since they're populists, that might almost put them in the same basket as the right-wing populist, which creates this kind of dangerous convergence of extremes idea, which is, of course, completely nonsensical. But at the same time, what is true about the left populists is that their attempts to basically displace rather than transcendental democracy or as Watkins correctly notes, a, a way of remaining social democrats while the social democrats themselves are no longer social democrats. So I don't think you can even assimilate them to the communist parties we saw in the 20th century. Uh, most of their programs are pretty box standard Keynesianism and sort of counter-cyclical uh, spending. In that sense, left populism didn't set itself the highest bar when it came to policy ambitions. Um, but the political context in which they operate is not just one of the decline of social democratic parties, but one of widespread disengagement and demobilization of civil society as a whole. So many of these left populists actually operate in societies which are highly individualized, in which union strength is declining, and which new forms of political engagement, such as the digital, seem to offer sort of cheaper and easier options to get people involved in political processes. Um, and there, these left populists usually get into a quandary which I have described as either being too left or too populist. So with the delegitimization of the classical left, that means there is a group of voters that is freed up, that is now able to uh, be conscripted in new political programs, but who are quite deeply disillusioned with the left because of its implication with the austerity project. And that makes it easier for these parties to go on the populist offensive and say like, oh, we speak in the name of the people and not the working class. We're going to organize and uh, mobilize this bloc against the caste, as Podemos said in Spain. Um, but at the same time, and I think Garbauda has written some very interesting things on this, this also risks creating parties which are highly digitalized, which are quite fluid and impermanent, that are not able to bind voters and members uh, to them in the same way that these 20th century mass parties could. So left populists are either too left insofar as they're seen as too associated with the now discredited social democratic establishment or they're too populist and they're basically um, too much of a digital party that draws in people on a very temporary online basis rather than bearing a durable constituency that can survive through electoral cycles. And add with that the massive coordination problems that come with the Eurozone. So, for example, you have to get elected as a left populist party together with another left populist party um, in the Eurozone to basically be able to coordinate crisis responses and stand up to that northern bloc that is basically pushing for austerity. And you get an almost impossible situation out of which there are very few pretty routes out. So what happened, for example as Syriza was conceding and basically giving in to creditors in 2015, is that you had Pablo Iglesias in Madrid saying, well, how many uh, battalions does the Pope have? Uh, we don't 
have to pretend as if Syriza was going to magically reorder the political economy of an entire continent. But it kind of spoke to the helplessness and the difficulty in what he was trying to pursue because it required this coordination effort where left populists would simultaneously get elected both in France and Spain and in Greece. This would be able to form an anti-austerity bloc which could actually take on the Merkel faction and um, Schäuble and the other Austerians and then push through a Keynesian stimulus program on a supranational scale. And of course, the electoral strength of these respective parties, which always too low to actually push that coordination through. And that basically meant you had to go for haphazard crisis fighting, which uh, didn't remedy the systemic problems. Yeah, that was. I, I agree with most of that. I have to ask Anton what he thinks is so wrong with uh, box standard Keynesianism. <laughs> oh, and nothing at all. I don't, as they say, like both reform and revolution have become very unlikely to work. <laughs> That's true, but I, I, I want to. Uh, I want to move to. Uh, in my answer, I want to sort of set up a different kind of fight between Anton and me, which is the other strategy that I think many of these so-called radical social democrats have pursued in the last decade after the crisis is that they have reverted to some sort of. Um, generalized year skepticism and at least not skepticism towards the European pro- product as a whole but also to the towards the eurozone and that's why I think the narrative that the euro itself the idea of monetary union is to blame for most of these problems is, is so potent and uh, in some way I think misleading and unhelpful and this I think relates to to some of the Italian responses. I think many elements within the five-star movement are, were openly Eurosceptical, but also on the right, I should say, um, within La Lega, although now they've repudiated their Euroscepticism. France Insoumise was also, uh, I think, openly um, playing with the idea of leaving the Eurozone. And then there's, of course, Brexit. And uh, I think Corbyn's, at best, ambiguous stance on, on, on the referendum, which I think reverted to the a bit more, a bit too convenient to stance that you have to honor the results of the referendum. I think this is why I think it's important for the left to have a realistic view on the euro and what the alternatives are historically. And, and in the case of the UK, to think about what the alternatives to the single market are and why they joined in the first place and how the arrangements were beneficial for the UK and why there was no real problem to solve, I think. And that's where we agree on, disagree on, is that I don't think that this was a movement, and that's the same is true for the Eurosceptical movements on the continent, that the left should have aligned itself with, given the, A, I think overall regressive and reactionary character of the sort of English nativism, and, and but also the, the, the anti-immigrant stance that was implicit in some of the arguments, often construed as a, the demands to maintain labor power and wages in the UK and to defend it from low-wage labor that was seeking sort of a, an outlet in the UK from the, from Europe. But also, uh, this was culturally reactionary in terms of its sort of revivalist, small English nationalism, but also it was something that would bear or inflict both short-term and long-term damage to the, the British working classes. I think you can make the same point for uh, other countries within the Eurozone. And that we have to emphasize the discrete policy choices that were made in the past rather than finding new arrangements outside of the Eurozone, which would be catastrophic in the short term because of the devaluation, uh, redenomination risk that you face as a country. And in the long term, you'll just become not unlike the UK is becoming now, and I mean, an emerging market with a, that's prone to currency crises. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. 
This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by New Left Review. New Left Review is a bi-monthly journal of ideas covering world politics, the global economy, social movements, theory, history, and culture. In the latest issue, Benjamin Kunkel writes on the task of the literary critic. Cédric Durand asks whether we're entering the techno-feudal era. Emily Bickerton analyzes French social cinema. And Jean-Baptiste Audouard unpacks the work of Adolf Reed. Subscriptions start at only $44 per year, which gets you six issues plus access to the full NLR archive dating back to 1960, featuring landmark texts by Theodore Adorno, John Paul Sartre, Frederick Jameson, Nancy Fraser, and Perry Anderson, among many others. First-time subscriptions also come with the choice of a free book from Verso. Visit the website now at newleftreview.org. There is a left critique of the EU. We've been developing one throughout this conversation, but but could there have been a Lexit when the actually existing Brexit movement was a movement led by by UKIP and the Tory right? There's a, a tendency on the left, represented maybe in theory more by by people like German scholar Wolfgang Streeck or in the domain of parliamentary politics, a figure like Delinka's uh, Sarah Wagenknecht, that that maintains that the left alternative to this anti-democratic EU is a return to a nationalist and sovereigntist position. That that democracy is best exercised through the nation state and its democratic conquests, rather than the pseudo internationalism of the EU and its supranational bodies. Others might say that such a nationalist position is anathema to an emancipatory politics. And also a, a dangerous move for Europe. Just look at what ratifying right-wing positions on migration has accomplished already in recent decades. Anton, has has the European left picked up this mantle of sovereignty with success? Or are there consequences that are worrying about about doing so? What's what's your response to that and and to, to Dom's to Dom's point there? Yeah, I think this is the point where the disagreements between Dominic and I come out. Most clearly, probably. Although I must say, I was more of a lexiteer in the past, and I've recently cooled some of my um, sort of hard <laughs> secessionist tendencies. Um, in that sense, I think several distinctions need to be made in this debate. I think your position on European integration is very um, dependent on the respective national context. I think lexiteerism in Greece or Grexiteerism, if you want to call it, and then considering in a French context implies very different strategic calculations. Um, and I'm certainly of the opinion, as Dominic said, that anyone who is criticizing the architecture or the policy architecture of the contemporary Eurozone has to realize that it was a very bad response to a very real problem. So the idea that you can just return to this almost ironic or peaceful world of currency floating of the 1980s, which is supposedly not German-centric, that's obviously illusory. Uh, you have to come up or the burden of proof is on you to provide a better monetary order that is not prone to the same pathologies. So in that sense, the euro is, again, a bad solution, but it solves a real problem. And what is the alternative you're putting forward? Um, what you saw in the Greek case, at least when the Grexit option was seriously being considered, um, is that the options outside of the eurozone were not very pretty either. So again, you could choose your own suffering, but it would still be suffering nonetheless. And 
both Tsipras and Varoufakis, for example, tried to solicit both Russia and China when it came to emergency loans so they could stay out of the Troika quagmire and not have to return to the IMF or to the European Council or the Eurogroup, rather, uh, for emergency aid. And what they heard from China mainly is, well, I mean, we have uh, some loans we could actually give you, but we have also these established commercial interests with Germany, and this would make it very difficult for us to engage uh, in this type of uh, lending, and we don't actually want to import or sorry, imperil our import and export interest uh, with that country. So there, I think the Lexit option might have been useful as a match which was held over a pool of gasoline, which would conflagrate the entirety of the Eurozone at the time. But I don't think it would have been a very pleasant process, certainly for the Greek working classes. If you look at the French case, I think the calculus is slightly different. So there's definitely been very strong Euroscepticism coming from parts of La France Assoumise, but also because France is such a key constitutional player in the European Union, has a much bigger economic share in the general European economy than Greece does, has a very different economic base. You can use threats towards your German counterpart in a very different way. And as we have also seen in the last 10 years, the obsessive adherence to treaties, most of the treaties actually are used by stronger players within the European state system against weaker players. So Macron, in the case of the pandemic, was able to tout many of these respect rules on public spending. And I think the more pragmatic players within La France Assoumise also realize, well, if we do win an election and we ascend to the presidency, it's not clear as if the Maastricht order is going to be the cage or the sort of iron cage that many people pretend it is to be. So the burden of proof is again on the Lexiteers to come up with a plausible alternative. At the same time, where I would push Dominic a bit is that since so much of the European construction has been built with demobilization and the absence of popular pressure as its presupposition, it also locks in this kind of infernal cycle which you see in Italy where parties make ever wilder promises to basically crash out of the Eurozone and remedy the country's economic problems, but then just end up electing governments that are then replaced by technocrats, which just completely perverts your political culture in the long run. So my question is always, how do you basically break out of this Italian cycle without considering something like a dirty break or a catastrophic crashing out, basically? I think a, a, a good analogy is um, someone who is an incredibly unlikable person who thinks that the solution to his problem is a, a nose job. So it's a purely cosmetic thing that doesn't solve... The, the the main problem and which might be botched. So it might be catastrophic and it might actually make you both unpleasant and you know, an unpleasant person with a horrible nose. I mean, I don't want to push this too far, but I think my point is, is, is clear here. That's the first thing. What I mean by that is that the solution long-term is to clean up your own act domestically because, again, I think many of the dysfunctions in Italy are domestic and they interact in very horrific ways with the um, the Eurozone and, and the constraints that are placed upon it. But really goes back to the post-war era and the, the, the putrefaction of you know, mainstream politics in Italy and the erosion of Italian civil society uh, are long-term trends um, which happen to be worsened by a series of um, discrete policy choices by the Italian elites. I think there's that, that we shouldn't attribute many of our problems to the Eurozone and therefore changing it could simply amplify the problems we have domestically. The other thing is, and this is partly a response to, to Strake as well, which is, you know, the, the Steelman argument for monetary sovereignty, quote unquote, or, or Lexit is 
our polities are still national. Economic policy making is interna is, is supranational, quote unquote supranational, and there's a disconnect between the democratic purchase on policy at the national level and international or supranational policy making. And because of this depolitization of, of policy making, we need to revert to the system in which we have national governments conducting policy and sovereign states interacting with each other and coming to arrangements on an equal footing. My response to that, that's already what we have in the Eurozone now, and that's probably why it's so dysfunctional. In other words, we ha already have national states with their own interests beggaring each other's neighbors, so to say, or th their own neighbors, in the council, which is the main decision-making body of the Eurozone. That's the intergovernmental aspect. So the, the misconstrual of some people on the sort of Lexit left as the EU as some sort of supranational entity, I think, is, is very important here. The main decisions are not made in the Commission or even in the Eurogroup, for that matter. Although the Eurogroup played a huge role in the Euro in the crisis, it's still an informal meeting. The main decisions are made by the elected heads of European states in the Council, and they still reflect the typical Euro European big power squabbling that has been going on for a thousand years, essentially. It is un under a different configuration. And the solution to that, to democratizing policymaking in, the, in, in Europe, is to go into the other direction, which is to create a genuine policy at the European level. I think one can reject the neoliberal, nationalist, like, intergovernmental version of the Eurozone, but I think on the left, it's incumbent upon us to advance a more progressive version of a European project um, in the future. Anton, what, what about Dom's argument there that nation states and I suppose their respective lefts have to get their own acts together and thus fix the EU, which is ultimately governed by nation states? Yeah, I will concede that Dom is very right. There's this vision, as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, of the EU as a super state that supposedly lords over these uh, national inferiors um, is obviously... Uh, illusory. So we know, for example, that the number of people employed by the ECB is inferior to that which is actually employed by the German Bundesbank. Um, I know for a fact that the entire bureaucratic personnel that works for European institutions in Brussels is actually lower than the entirety of civil servants that's employed by the city of uh, Paris. So it is not that bureaucratic Moloch or behemoth, which a lot of people make it out to be. <laughs> and most of the European institutions, as Dominic said, are actually extensions of these national governments that basically get together in these intergovernmental arenas to impose policy packages which they would find very difficult to sell and, and implement at home. So the, Europe, the European Council, for example, is an extremely secretive body in many regards where European elites can deliberate on each other and someone like Christopher Bickerton has called this a transformation of nation states into member states where you work from vertical forms of legitimation where politicians basically get their mandates from voters to horizontal forms of legitimation where it's the mutual relationship between these national elites that basically assures that they can sell policies on the home front. But that gets us into a very difficult chicken and egg problem precisely because so much of the European Union has been built on the hollowing out or the voiding of these relationships between politicians and citizens. So politicians have ever weaker roots and ties with civil society and parties are deeply disconnected from their respective populations. This means there is a kind of multiplier effect once they move to the European level 
where they govern without any clear mandate and with mutual elites on a European level, but then go back towards their respective national electorates and tell a very different story. So someone like Sarkozy in France, I think, is the best example of this, who, when he was around Merkel and he was uh, deciding on how to manage the euro crisis, he was a pretty predictable like Austerian didn't descend from any of the orthodox lines that were dominant at the time. But then when he went home and he basically had to explain to the French electorate that he wasn't able to solve France's crisis and then played the immigration and the ethno-nationalist card to basically compensate for his own powerlessness on the European level. And there the chicken and egg problem basically becomes, do you have to rejuvenate Uh, national polities which have been hollowed out partly through the European Union or do you basically have to do a sort of big leap over those national institutions and basically immediately start at the supranational? And what you saw with Varoufakis, for example, after his tenure as finance minister in Greece is that he did try to start this pan-European left-wing movement that could perform on the supranational level directly, namely uh, with DM25, but precisely because the only institutions on a European level which are amenable to democratic pressure, namely the European Parliament, doesn't have legislative initiative, is immensely weak compared to European Council and certainly compared to the Commission. Um, it creates an issue where you don't know where the entry point in these institutions really is. So if you were to build a very strong movement on a national level that would still create conflicts with the European level while starting at the European level generates the issue that, well, it is not open to democratic pressure in the same way that this national level is. And again, I won't pretend as if I have a magical solution to this, but it needs to be reckoned with and I don't think we can do any magical thinking uh, for that issue. In the absence of, of this social Europe that social Democrats once dreamed of or of popular democratic control over the economy of any sort, we've frequently over the years seen Europe promote itself as as this guardian of human rights. But in actuality, but in reality, what what we've seen in recent decades has been militarized borders and constant mass death in the Mediterranean, alongside these really fantastically dirty deals to keep migrants out of the continent struck with Erdogan and Turkey and forces in Libya where migrants have literally been enslaved. What purpose does human rights discourse serve in the EU, particularly given this really bleak reality? And then stepping back a bit more, why has free movement within Europe coincided with this increasing hardening of Europe's external borders? I don't profess to have an answer to what role that kind of hypocritical discourse plays in Europe. I think the illusion of Europe as being a paragon of human rights and indeed of, of social protection and, and all those things results partly, it was partly a function of the the legacy of the welfare state in Europe, which indeed is, I think, admirable, at least that it's among the wealthy countries, um, the European countries, at least in the West of the Europe, stand out for being very developed and, and, and comparatively quite equal, especially in, in the North, having very extensive welfare um, uh, systems. Um, and I think, I think that's rightly something that Europeans um, should be proud of. The, but it, it sits very uncomfortably with this attitude towards migrants and it, it relates to the welfare system. In other words, people perceive migration as being motivated by these, these very generous welfare arrangements. And 
I think that's where you, I think that's where a lot of the the brutality at the border comes from is is politicians reacting to domestic pressure both on the um, economic front both on the sort of labor power and and wage setting and sort of these these systems of um, insiders who enjoy quite extensive protection and who don't want to share their their benefits and those who are on the other end of the dualized labor market who uh, are really quite quite precarious and who perceive this injection of desperate um, migrants and refugees as threatening to their privileges. In terms of I mean, the brutality at the European border um, is unfortunately not quite different from the brutality at the Australian border or at the Indian border or at, at other borders throughout the world. The only thing that I would note or why it, it irks me and others, I think, is because it's, there's this element of hypocrisy that um, permeates the entire thing that Europe tries to be um, a beacon of humanity but somehow ends up as, as not being able to um, treat people with um, human dignity. I should say, though, that, that, that Europe does not have the same capacity as the United States to absorb uh, migratory flows, not least because it is very densely populated, not as large, but also because there is so much difference in terms of the economic development within Europe that distributing the burden of this influx is politically quite hard. There's this coordination fear that people don't want to deal with, so they just um, become essentially you know, fascistic in their handling of the crisis at the border um, because countries like Germany or Italy could very much use migrants uh, and, and they could, if they would treat them well, they would become you know, very proud Germans or Italians and they would um, make up for some of the demographic trends. But other countries, particularly in, in Eastern Europe, uh, are less in need of these of these influxes and they are also um, are more nationalistic and indeed more xenophobic. And another layer of that hypocrisy is that these these migratory flows are rooted obviously in Europe's own colonial history, but, but also much more recently, European-involved military action in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Libya not, not to mention everything that France has been up to for a very long time in Francophone Africa. Oh yes, I mean I would also I would not exclude the United States there. I mean I think the United States has oh, also, no. <laughs> has lit no. the the Middle East everywhere from Afghanistan to Libya no. on fire, and that uh, that unfortunately explains most of the um, the deprivation which forces people to leave their homes. Um, but yes, France was heavily involved in Libya. Anton mentioned the 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 combination of European economic policy, the 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 food revolts that kicked off in Syria and elsewhere. The West, quote unquote, the rich countries in general are responsible for a lot of, for quite a bit of, of what is going on there. But you know, one shouldn't take the domestic uh, actors um, uh, out of out of the picture. I think, mm-hmm. um, and you know, unrestricted uh, immigration is unfortunately also quite bad um, in the long term for some of these um, countries, particularly those who are not undergoing war and in sub-Saharan Africa who see um, a, a permanent depletion of the population, particularly the young, the young population, who don't come back and who may or may not send remittances. So it's a very complicated question, but unfortunately Europe has acquitted itself very poorly in, in handling it. I, I would also add that there's the military side to it, but also economically, um, I wouldn't call Europe a sort of continental gated community, but it's very much uh, a legacy of the divergent growth trajectories of the post-war period where Europe was able to lift an enormous amount of its population into what we could now call the middle class while many of the developing world was left behind. So you basically have an enormous pool of surplus labor in the South that 
faces diminishing economic prospects and that wants to find its way to this gated community that uh, now is protected by Frontex. But it's also because the original purpose of the European Union was also to be an agricultural cartel of basically to provide subsidies, for example, French and other farmers, which have these massive benefits where they're able to dump their agricultural produce on the global market, while, for example, African farmers cannot get their products into Europe that easily. And that, of course, creates these massive democratic pressures also for uh, the formerly um, agricultural countries or countries which are still agricultural but haven't been able to industrialize to basically send loads of their populations uh, towards countries which still experience a bit of growth. I will also add that, for example, even the case of Merkel, who in 2015 held her very famous Reishafenda speech, or We Will Make It speech, in which she welcomed the migrants that were coming in fleeing the Syrian uh, civil war. Uh, there, I don't think we should overestimate the humanitarian intentions of that particular decision. Um, so Wolfgang Streich has written quite compellingly over the fact that this speech itself was held in the aftermath of the Syriza drama. So after they had humiliated the Greek government and basically forced him to do a U-turn after the referendum, there was massive reputational damage, not only to the German, to, to the European policy establishment as a whole. So there had to be an instrument by which they could reapply for membership of the human race, as Dominic uh, said it today, and um, kind of refurbish their humanitarian reputation abroad. But for Merkel, there was an even more cynical motive involved, is that certainly in the lower parts of the German labor market, there was a massive issue of labor shortages, um, that low-wage service sector could use a massive influx of labor, and many of these Syrians could flow into the German economy, and thereby she basically killed two birds with one stone. She saved Europe's humanitarian reputation on the international stage. Uh, certainly the pan-European middle classes now saw her as the sort of savior of Europe European civilization, while at the same time she was able to solve an issue for German employers, which has been ailing them for a long time. And the strange thing about Merkel, and I think it speaks to our incapacity to actually properly read recent EU history in a materialist way, is that people see her as this effect without a cause. So she's either the demon that uh, killed the white race, as some uh, European far-right parties see it, or she's the moralistic savior that upheld Europe's good mores uh, in the migrant crisis. But I think she's neither of those things. She's a very savvy politician who believes in very little but herself, as, as Drake said it, who was able to solve a labor supply issue and at the same time maintain her position as a good Samaritan uh, internationally. And again, there it is really a sort of tissue of hypocritical positions um, that determines European policymaking. A couple of sentences only. Um, there's one issue we haven't talked about, but it relates to this issue, which is climate. And I think climate policy in general and um, is a, a blind spot for some of the, both the detractors and the advocates of the European projects. Uh, there was this exchange between Perry Anderson and Luke van Middelaar, who's one of the more famous European, pro-European intellectuals. And I think both of them have this uh, blind spot uh, for European climate policy and, and the implication of climate change in many of the largest trends that we are seeing in Europe, including the uh, the immigration from North Africa and the Middle East, which is driven by 
the degradation of the environment and uh, rising temperatures and the lack of um, water and food. Um, and more is to come. There's you know, a simmering water crisis in northern Africa, which will eventually also end up in large migratory flows to Europe. Um, but in a way, Europe also, as being one of the industrialized continents, has also, uh, and like China more recently, drawn, like, uh, uh, closed the drawbridge uh, on the rest of the world in terms of using up all the carbon space available and is now forcing everyone around and including themselves to cut down on their carbon budgets, which of course means foreclosing on economic development and also in these parts of the world. So there's a rather tragic entanglement of European climate policy um, and industrialization with um, the calamities in the Middle East and Northern Africa. A key moment in this history of the EU's borders was their massive expansion beginning in 2004 with the entry of former Eastern Bloc countries. Although EU membership was expected to have liberalizing effects, the result, at least until recently, seemed to be these intensifying conflicts between Brussels and countries like Poland and Hungary that were pursuing socially reactionary, illiberal policies and authoritarianism. What drove eastward expansion and why did it ultimately play out in such a contradictory way? And then what does this newfound European unity against Russia, led very much by Poland and the Baltic states, though not, of course, by Hungary, what does that, does that suggest a temporary release from those tensions? I, th- I think one of the unfortunate consequences of the war, apart from all the consequences for the for the Ukrainian people and for the rest of the world, has been the rehabilitation of some of the more unsavory political actors in Eastern and Central Europe. The extremely reactionary and indeed fascistic uh, elements in Poland and Hungary, um, or Poland, I should say, Hungary perhaps less so, has is now given a free pass on many of their um, of their policies, which are contrary to European law and which indeed are more assertive and in, 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 in more nationally assertive and which, which try to carve out space for themselves in, in, in the European Union. The, the Eastport expansion itself, it's, it's hard to, um, to, to say exactly what was the driving factor. Economic concerns were, of course, um, I think, central to it, for, uh, in particular the notion that this continued spillover and drive from more integration will eventually contribute to further integration at the center. In other words, if we integrate more countries, we'll become a more diverse block of economies, which then uh, will be more stable and it will be able to you know, diversify more, will grow incomes in those countries, but also there are profit opportunities for German companies and other companies who can then settle there and take advantage of the lower wages it's a very, I think, generic economic uh, arg- set of economic arguments about comparative advantage and integration and free movement of people and capital. And it, I think there was also this path dependency politically to increase Europe, Europe's, uh, extend Europe's borders to the east. And that path dependency was surely also driven by the NATO dynamic, which is always in the background, because obviously almost all um, European member states are also uh, NATO member states, all of them, in fact, I should say. And it's, it goes hand in tandem with um, the expansion of NATO in Eastern Europe. And as I said, this has led to a great deal of conflict between uh, some of the more right-wing uh, dominated countries, but this dynamic has changed. And I think it's too early to say where we'll go in the future. NATO motives for this particular integration shouldn't be underestimated. So you saw this also very clearly with the Ukrainian crisis of what sort of stoked 
some of these paranoid Russian fears is that NATO membership was always seen as a prelude to membership of the European Union as well, in that once a country had the Article 5 assurance from NATO, it would be far more difficult for Russia to threaten it, and thereby European accession would also become much easier. I think what's particularly driving many of these anti-migrant sentiments, for example, in Hungary, and I think you could make similar arguments about Poland, is that the predicted convergence, which people were talking about in the early 2000s, namely the more economies integrate into this European bloc, the more these economies will start to look like each other, hasn't actually materialized. So what has actually happened in Hungary is that you have had a massive exodus, mainly of the educated middle classes, which found its way to uh, other European capitals. And this is basically left behind a country that's very heavily depopulated, very old, um, that is actually reacting to its own form of emigration with hatred for possible immigration. So um, it's mainly in the rural countryside that Orban drives much of its strength, where you have a very capital-intensive uh, agricultural sector and you basically have older voters that assure the Orbanite voting bloc. Um, but it's partially also an effect of the unequal consequences of European economic integration, which basically provide the basis for anti-migrant sentiment in, I think, Ivan Krestev put, uh, uh, put this very well, where he says, like, well, if people are leaving the country en masse, and certainly young people, then you have even lesser incentives, or even fewer incentives, rather, to welcome new people into the country, because it just seems as if the great replacement, which the far right likes to talk about, is actually happening in front of your eyes. And there is, of course, a high degree of phantasm to that. But at the same time, these countries have gone or have undergone these economic adjustment processes, which are really, really quite dramatic, certainly in the 2000s. Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, to phrase it in terms of um, uh, Albert Hirschman's famous um, uh, uh, framework of exit voice and loyalty, the ability for young people to actually move through the Schengen area, so the, the open border system in Europe, also removes the voice option, or it, it, it makes an exit option available and therefore removes the voice option, and therefore there's less of an opposition as these go by to Orban and, and his ilk. And this is also a function of the fact that the development has been uneven and combined in yeah. these countries. So you have a huge, an empowered middle class, but also you have um, a certain amount of um, impoverishment um, at the margins of society that has a, a very um, deleterious effect on politics. I should also say, and Anton and I like to joke about this, is that we always assume that economic development goes hand in hand with a, a liberalization of values and sort of post-material values. And you know we see less patriarchy and less uh, class conflict. But in fact, at some level, when a country becomes richer, it also empowers the awful people in that country. So the the, the most reactionary elements suddenly have more means to be reactionary. And uh, unfortunately, this is also something that we're seeing in these countries, which had um, long dormant um, because economically undeveloped um, right-wing elements, which are now coming to the forefront again. As, as you mentioned, Anton, NATO expanded eastward ahead of the EU. And European defense and security politics have, in the post-war period, always been subordinated to the U.S.-led military alliance. Mike Davis once quipped that social spending in Europe was subsidized by the American nuclear umbrella. But France, for years, has called on Europe to develop what they call strategic sovereignty, some, something with roots in, in its Gaullist skepticism of NATO. Is this push to realign Europe away from Washington, or was it particular to France and its status as the sole European power with nuclear weapons, a seat on the UN Security Council, and 
vast post-colonial interests across Africa and, and the Middle East. And then what has the war in Ukraine meant for this idea of European strategic autonomy? In in the face of both, I guess, the contradictory revival of both liberal Atlanticism and its illiberal variants in Eastern Europe. Yeah, I want to reply to the Mike Davis line you cited, which I think is a, a tantalizing and fascinating line, but I, I don't think it quite holds up, certainly because <laughs> it stipulates this kind of um, zero-sum dynamic between defense spending and social spending. But if you look at some Scandinavian social democracies, which are not NATO members, or at least not yet, insofar as now there's a rapid move towards accession, sadly, there it doesn't seem as if the trade-off is that big there. So obviously there are spillover effects from NATO membership in Europe as a whole, but I don't think you have to except that social spending and defense spending are basically in this really strict trade-off. Social spending in France is 40% of GDP, and NATO-compliant defense spending would be 2% of GDP. There's no no obvious trade-off here at all. Yeah, Yeah, so you don't have to deny that there are effects of NATO membership which are beneficial in some terms or where the U.S. basically has to finance a bigger part of it. It doesn't mean that you can't build a welfare state if you have to maintain a military, etc., etc. Yeah, I, I do think... The dynamic or the sort of geopolitical interest of the U.S. in European economic and political integration has always been slightly ambiguous. You already saw this in the early 50s with the Treaty of Paris and the Treaty of Rome, where it was basically American allied officials who presided over the so-called decartelization of German industry, which tried to basically uh, perfect the competitive law to make sure that French and German steel um, would not be able to cartelize in such a way that another European war would break out. But the issue there was always that the geopolitical imperative for the US, which was to maintain a strong European bloc against the Soviet Union, kind of conflicted with the interests of the American steel industry, which actually feared increased European competition. So parts of the national security state maybe wanted European steel and coal production to become more competitive, but this would also mean a problem for some of the steel and coal producers at home. Um, CF Judith Stein. Yes, exactly. So financing industrialization abroad to basically bolster anti-communism also implies that you could, yes, uh, threaten the competitive standing of your own steel industry and actually accelerate industrialization, uh, deindustrialization rather at home. Um, I think the dynamic between or the sort of very close and intimate relationship between NATO expansion and European expansion is mainly a product of the kind of unipolar 1990s, even though there has always been a deeper straining French Gaulism, but I think the French ruling class as a whole, which hoped that Europe would be able to become its own strategic pole against the US and against Russia. You saw this in the aftermath of the Iraq war, where Europe supposedly emerged as its own independent security actor. Uh, Some of these ideas resurfaced during the Trump years or the Trumpite interregnum in which uh, the sort of drifting away of the United States from the international rights-based order, as they love to say, uh, created a space in which European policymakers could autonomously think about their security objectives. But I think what you've seen in the aftermath of the Russian invasion is actually a really impressive resubordination of European superior, uh, security objectives rather to the Atlanticist bloc. Um, so now there are real ambitions for Europe to pay up its share to the NATO budget, um, to basically completely 
subsume most of its geostrategic plans to American plans. And I think it's a very impressive reaffirmation of American power, which seemed on the wane during the Trump years, but which is now back in full force. And I don't think anyone like Schäuble or even Macron should have any illusions about what appearing strategic autonomy will look like in that new world. I haven't, I'd, or at least I don't remember a moment at which European strategy was so in line with American objectives, even to the degree that the classical energy dependency Europe has always suffered from now is exacerbated by these sanctions, which is actually threatening partial deindustrialization, for example, in Germany. And maybe Dominic has less catastrophic predictions to make about this, but it's very clear that the geopolitical agenda of the United States actually has enormous economic risks for Europe today. Uh, it's not economically beneficial for Europe in any way. And you do see large parts of German export capital who are very much opposed to the sanctions regime and want a diplomatic solution for the war because they realize that the cutting off of gas is actually, well, you have to heat the factories and you have to keep the factories going because otherwise um, they might be defunct for generations to come. Well, and, and, and just to, to add to Anton's point about the, the resubordination under the NATO command and the expansion of NATO that is ongoing now, it also helps the US's broader geostrategic objectives in the Pacific. The notion that Europe is now fully on board also in the encirclement of China. If Europe can take care of its defense objectives, that will make it easier for the U.S. to uh, continue and um, and it will make available more resources for its objectives in the, in the Pacific. Yeah, it's basically a completion of the pivot to Asia insofar as uh, Europe takes care of Russia as a potential ally for China and there it takes care of that part of the encirclement objective and the U.S. can basically concentrate all of its diplomatic and military firepower on the rising Chinese threat. I don't want to, in response to the other stuff and in response to your question, Dan, and I, I, I'm very sorry for quoting Henry Kissinger on a Jacobin podcast, but uh, <laughs> Kissinger once said in his sort of um, malicious realism um, that the United States has no permanent enemies or allies, it only has interests. And a lot of the condescending whining about European defense free riding has an element of hypocrisy <laughs> in the sense that it says you're not spending, in particular Germany, you're not spending um, 2% of your GDP on, on your defense budget, as you should as a NATO member. But the best response to the free riding would be um, the Europeans establish their own command and, and unify uh, their militaries under European armed forces arrangement, as France uh, and to some extent Germany had been um, vouching they would do during the pandemic when they were re reestablishing new fiscal arrangements and they would allocate more funding to a European army, which is something that the Atlanticists on especially stateside have been uh, quite adamant that they would that they would oppose. So in other words, they want European the Europeans to rearm um, and to beef up their military spending, but only under the NATO command, which is under U uh, U.S. Um, control in the end. And so there's there's some element. It's, it's true that the Europeans are f um, defense free riders, but it's um, I think one has to be careful from which point of view one opposes that um, habit. No, it, it's just to say that even if you were to have European strategic autonomy, which seems even further out of sight now, um, I don't think we should be any uh, under any illusions rather about what the foreign activities of 
the sources would be if you see what France has been doing on its own, although with some American cooperation in France-Afrique, as they call it, or Sub-Saharan Africa, it doesn't look pretty at all. So in that sense, the alternatives for NATO might sometimes also take a very unsavory form. We've got to address the European right in a little depth before we close out. Have Europe's traditional conservative parties, often parties in the Christian democratic tradition, have they suffered something equivalent to Pesachification, even as in countries like France, conservative parties have moved as far to the right as possible on issues like migration and crime in a bid to keep their vote from going to far-right parties? Have they witnessed a similar problem as social democratic parties, if for, for different reasons? I think if you look at these parties purely in terms of membership statistics, there definitely has been a similarly dramatic decline. So the Gaullists, but also, for example, the British Tories, and you can look at the Belgian or rather Flemish Social Democrats, uh, Christian Democrats, excuse me, and the German Christian Democrats. They've both been hemorrhaging and losing members for quite a while now. I don't think that leads to the same crisis of legitimacy or support which you get with Social Democrats, insofar as there's a very basic point that Friedrich Engels always makes about capitalist society. The threshold for success is always higher on the left than it is on the right. So right-wing parties uh, always find it easy to govern because capital is already organized. And this means that since they've always been cadre or cartel parties, although they always had a mass base, uh, they don't experience this decline with the same traumatic uh, effects. At the same time, they do have to deliver to their voters to some degree. And you can clearly see this on the French right, where most of the classical electorate of the French right is basically deserting those parties for alternatives on the far right. And this does create this discrepancy between the imperatives uh, of business, which those parties still have to listen to, and the demands of their popular base. At the same time, further on the right, you have the rise of a distinctly hard-right Euroscepticism, which has become ever more vocal, certainly in the last 10 years. But there, again, I think, uh, as they say, I think in Dutch, the soup is not eaten as hot as it is served, in that you have wild promises about crashing out of the Eurozone, for example, with Salvini or even with Marine Le Pen. But our friend Nicolas Mulder once compared the contemporary far-right's relationship to the Euro to Mussolini's relationship to the gold standard. So when you're electioneering and when you're basically trying to get into power, you make all kinds of wild promises of modernitary sovereignty and a base basically breaking out of British dependency when you're actually in power and you have to govern with the assent and the agreement of capital, you have a business class that very much likes these kind of fixed exchange rates and therefore you're not actually going to give up your attachment to the gold standard. I think you see a similar dynamic with the far right in Italy, for example, where the Lega is now reaching out to southern voters, but most of its regional base is still located in the north. That Southern voters that they used to be explicitly racist against. Yes, that exactly. was That was like the point of the party. Yeah, so the Lega <laughs> North changed its name to the Lega to remove any connotation to the northern part of Italy, but they're no longer seeing those southern voters as... A subhuman, uh, well, I mean, so close to Africa. Africans. Yeah, basically (laughs) Africans. While the South calls the North Germans and the North calls the South uh, Africans. Um, But they're trying to supplicate those voters, but it's real party base in the North, which mainly consists of these mid-side businesses that have a very close commercial entanglement with 
German industry, certainly in the South, they would find crashing out of the euro a far riskier endeavor insofar as it would really push up the costs of all the products they actually sell to Germany. So there again, you can make all the promises about crashing out of the eurozone, but you're kind of hamstrung by these economic interests that make it very difficult. Yeah, I mean, so-called nationalists on the far right, like like Maloney, are quick to compromise and moderate on their Euroscepticism, but not on migration. And then on the other hand, on the other side, pro-European leaders like Macron are quick to make compromises with so-called populism just as long as it's on migration and law and order, but not on Europe. There's a certain compromise here that's convenient to both sides. Well, also, I mean, one shouldn't um, overlook the importance of so-called European cohesion funding, which has been important in, in some of the Eastern European countries, which is finances the payments of you know of the corrupt incumbents to their selectorates, but also the, the, the rents of the elites there who can misappropriate some of the funds or channel the investment to their cronies. And more recently, the next generation EU money, which is the 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 huge investment package that resulted from the pandemic, which is something that the um, the Italian right has now committed, it would not um, in, imperil with its program. So they're going to, um, because they, it comes with certain conditionality t- attached and they're not going to renege on these uh, conditionalities. And that's, it illustrates this dynamic that Anton just talked about, that these parties like to um, use the Eurozone as this sort of cudgel, or rather the threat of the Eurozone to gather popular support, but then when it comes to it, it's also their um, source of income and, and the way they stay in power ultimately. So I think one shouldn't take these far-right populists um, too seriously insofar, um, in terms of their Euroscepticism. As for those Christian Democrats, I think and this is simply an addendum to what Anton already said, which is uh, people tend to misconstrue the, the biggest trend of the um, last decades as uh, the polarization of the party system in Europe, but really... What has happened is that these these cartel parties have actually converged rather than diverged, and the converge the convergence around a sort of blob of centrist um, neoliberal policies is what uh, resulted in annihilation for some of these social democratic parties and you know grave um, um, wounds for the Christian Democrats, partly because they are much they have an easier time of code switching. I think so they can triangulate sort of social democratic welfare policies or more public spending without being accused of being irresponsible lefties. And I think they have a, a better time of, um, and, and they can sell austerity more successfully because again, their constituents don't actually expect spending and left governments are punished more severely for austerity as well. So th- there's that dynamic which explains why the the Christian Democrats um, have been less uh, impacted than uh, the PASOKs of the SPDs and the um, party socialists of the world. And something I want to add on the hard right parties we talked about is that part of the reason why they focus so monomanically on immigration is firstly because it's cheaper. It's a much cheaper way of actually doing substitute social policy than sort of ambitious uh, fiscal efforts, etc., etc. And it has also become a substitute form of labor market policy, as someone like Thomas Piketty has pointed out, insofar as if you basically delegate or give away all the levers of social intervention that you previously had, basically shutting down or stopping 
the supply of labor from abroad becomes a way of sort of artificially raising wages, even though it rarely actually has that effect. So again, immigration only becomes this cudgel or this hammer that finds a nail everywhere once you have no other way of influencing what happens in your labor market um, before. Yeah, Maloney may sink migrant ships and she's also getting rid of five stars job seeker benefits. Yes. And in, for example, France, this takes very extreme forms where someone like Eric Zemmour thinks that purely by stopping immigration, you will be able to solve the deficit. As far as the deficit, in his view, is purely a result of excessive welfare spending on all these lazy foreigners, so to speak, that uh, don't contribute to GDP. And if you basically kick them all out, then France's fiscal and monetary woes will all be solved. And I mean, we're beyond fantasy here. This is... (laughs) Uh, yeah, like completely hallucinatory. <laughs> did, did the Troika's crushing of the radical left, starting with Syriza amid the Eurozone crisis, did that leave the far right as essentially this exclusive political outlet for anti-system politics? Why, why did the EU's anti-populist politics, ostensibly aimed at threats on both the right and the left, seem to do such disproportionate harm to a left that is just not in good shape right now? while allowing the far right to keep coming keep coming back again and again and again all over the continent. I think I'm going to reiterate the point I made before. The standards of success are just lower for the hard right. The far left sets itself certain criteria of what counts as success, uh, whether it's reforming the entire Eurozone or basically turning these very rigid institutions towards Keynesianism. And when they fail, they get punished by voters because they set themselves these standards. While the hard right does make certain promises, but doesn't actually um, deliver on them in any way. But this is not how its governing philosophy actually functions. And we also have to say that, for example, on immigration, most of the far right's desiderata have been relatively aligned with what mainstream European policymakers have been doing for a while, whether it's pushbacks or actually militarizing the border. Those are things that many mainstream politicians have also gone over to. So in that sense, the hard right can point to policy results which are a bit more concrete than anything the far left, uh, sorry, the far left has to show for. Uh, and I, I agree on that. The other thing is that um, this is overlooked, at least particularly in the Italian context, is that not only does the um, the far right have an easier time code switching, and they get they have they're, they're, they're not punished as severely as left wing parties for their failures because they don't set themselves those goals in the first place. But also, I think they find a even if they are punished for um, economic uh, failures, they, they can remain in power for much longer by waging endless culture wars. I think this is a huge... I happened to be in Italy during the campaign, and most of the campaign towards the end was purely on culture, manufactured culture war issues. So Meloni spent most of the last two weeks of her campaign talking about uh, an episode of Peppa the Pig where um, <laughs> a, le- a, le- a lesbian couple was portrayed <laughs> in rather innocuous terms. And she said that this was uh, you know, the sign of the de- degeneration of the uh, Italian uh, uh, people. And it's quite extraordinary because there's, no, um, there's no response. To, there's a sort of impotent response from the centrist parties. And they, they can't respond to this. And this is something that will renew the lease of, on, on life of the far-right uh, parties in Europe for quite a long time, I think. Amid persistent inflation, the the ECB, like other central banks, is raising interest rates and pulling back from unconventional monetary policy, all at a moment beset by the war with Russia, supply chain disruptions, skyrocketing energy prices, 
rising competition from China and the U.S.'s new Cold War with China, and then more broadly and encompassing sort of everything, the geoeconomics of a massive green energy transition. Given the failure of the EU's political bodies to deal with so many fundamental problems across Europe and the reliance on the central bank's extremely powerful but limited tools, is the EU coming up against the hard limits of what sort of crisis management technocracy can accomplish? The problem with crises in these environments, namely when, when there are like 20 or 27 veto players in this case, is that when coordination is most needed, it's least attainable because of how the crisis exacerbates power disparities between countries. So a unified response at the intergovernmental level is, is very, very hard. So that is something that continues to constrain European policymaking and its response to the um, the so-called poly crisis, if you like. And it's, it's ironic that this is not something that people are aware of because they have a crisis theory which is based on the opposite assumption that uh, during crises, Europe will be, will be forged and it will be the sum of parts cont- uh, made during crisis. That's the, the quote by um, Robert Schumann, who was one of the founding fathers of Europe. It's not Schumann's blessing, as it's something sometimes called. It's, it's Schumann's curse because the coordination required for institution building and policy responses that are effective is actually harder to attain during crises. Then there's the the rather silly position that the Europe has put itself in in, in energy terms, which is also the reason why it is now inducing a recession via the ECB's uh, monetary hiking cycle. <laughs> Simply put, uh, it's not just the inflation that it's responding to, but it's also the the weakness of the euro, which is driven by inflation, which in turn is driven by high, higher energy prices. And there's sort of a doom loop, um, which is driving the euro down relative to its um, largest trading partners, currencies, in particular the dollar, coupled with the fact that the Fed is hiking very aggressively. So the dollar is rising in strength. Everyone is trying to keep up, but their currencies are declining and they're inducing a massive recession. So that is an obvious policy failure in my view, but one which the, the ECB feels it's constrained or compelled to, to commit, both in terms of its mandate of price stability, but also politically because they will be seen as a failure and they will lose their legitimacy if they don't appear to be fighting inflation, even though what they're doing can't actually help with an inflation that is mostly supply-driven. So there's a... I would not, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say it's an ongoing catastrophe, um, this concerted global monetary tightening, um, inducing a global recession at an already very vulnerable moment, but that, I should say, is not only a European problem, it's also a policy mistake at the level of the Federal Reserve and Bank of England and other central banks. And I'm not quite sure at all how Europe can respond to this institutionally. I would be very careful with... The cyclical predictions we often encounter of the imminent demise of the European Union. So <laughs> these flare up um, across these crises and people often make very wild astrological predictions about whether the European Union is now going to disappear from the stage. I think there has always been a so-called exit paradox, which political scientists talk about. So in better economic times, the incentives for exiting something like the Eurozone or the European Union um are quite weak insofar as people seem to be doing well, or at least the economy seems to be doing well, so why is there a reason to leave? While then in crises, there is 
even a sense that, well, now there is an emergency situation and it will be even worse if we get out of the Eurozone at this time. And this kind of locks people in a dependency on these European institutions where uh, it seems like the lesser of two evils compared to the other options. Um, at the same time, even if you look at countries that are, I'd say, flirting with other economic blocks outside of Europe, whether it's Hungary and its relationship to China and Russia, whether it's Italy and its sort of wayward involvement with Belt and Road, that is not a wholesale reorientation or a pivot away from Europe. It's more sort of hybrid and uh, I'd say hybrid entanglement with those other blocks, and it doesn't actually diminish the importance of the European le level at all. So some people have said like, oh, Europe is on its way to becoming what is basically the Russian economic zone, which unites some of the former post-Soviet countries, uh, which don't have any real political integration between each other. But I don't think that's the right analogy. I think we're likely to see a strengthening of the European level, despite its resubordination in a geopolitical sense to the United States, while at the same time there is simply no other option for the countries that are inside of it. Once you're in it, it is very, very risky to actually get out. Well, Anton Jaeger and Dominic Loyster, thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Anton Jaeger is a postdoctoral researcher at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. His history of basic income, Welfare for Markets, will appear in April 2023 at University of Chicago Press, co-authored with Daniel Zamora. Dominic Loyster is an economist and writer based in London. He's currently the research director at the Global Economic Governance Commission at the London School of Economics and a regular contributor to Jacobin. Check out their podcast, Eurotrash. I posted a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, all the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Riofrancos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 